What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Rehumanizing Project from Good Morning Liberty. This is an interview that Charlie and I did with Andrew Oshinsky. Andrew had a cool story. He said that in 2008, the first, the first election he could vote in for the president, he voted for Obama. And then in 2012, he was on the Ron Paul train. So, of course, we got to go through how that happened. I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Let's get you right into the interview. So my name is Andrew Oshinsky. I'm, uh, I'm an engineering manager. I uh, currently live in Salt Lake City, Utah, but um, I didn't grow up didn't grow up here. I grew up in Northern California, lived kind of all over California, um, left and went to Oregon for a few years, and then recently left Oregon and, and came here to Utah. What brought you over to Utah? Um, a lot of it was the job opportunity. Um, I'll say, I mean, that was the the primary driver, really. Um, but now that we're now that I'm here, it's it's my wife and um, our young son. Uh, we're uh, we're very happy to be here. What kind of uh, what kind of engineering? Um, so my degree's in mechanical engineering, um, but I've I've worked in the manufacturing side of things pretty much my for the vast majority of my career. And, and what time of what type of manufacturing do you do now? Uh, so a lot of different industries. Um, I've worked in medical device manufacturing. Um, I worked for a uh, industrial gas turbine manufacturer uh, for a while down in San Diego. Um, I worked for the uh, kettle chip brand, um, and now here in Salt Lake, I'm working for a um, pipeline company. So we make um, we make the devices that go inside oil and gas pipelines and, and basically you send them down and they run an inspection on the pipeline, check for damage or anything like that. Oh, that's pretty interesting. <clears throat> My dad actually was a mud engineer. And so he's the one that pumped, he came up with the formulas to put the pump down for the, for the pressure stabilization. Um, I didn't, I didn't know a mud engineer existed until my dad <laughs> told me what he did. <laughs> so yeah, I actually have to say, I haven't heard of that one before. Yeah. Yeah. He literally mixed mud for a living. So that's pretty cool. So um, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, you sent us this uh, info, which is really nice. Tell us a little bit, kind of go into detail, if you will, how you grew up. And, um, you know, you mentioned uh, your family was uh, from the left, the Democratic side, and you were raised with with really good values and not judging people. So tell us what your childhood was like and and um, how that shaped your political view. I grew up in a small town kind of a suburb of the San Francisco area. Um, you know, both my parents are Democrats. Most of the people that I knew, I would say, were Democrats. Um, and it, it always just kind of, I don't know, it was always, I was always kind of led to believe, whether it was ever stated explicitly or not, that, you know, the quote-unquote intellectual way to vote was as a Democrat. It was the compassionate way to vote. So in essence, like if you care about people, you you vote. Democrat. Right, right, right. Then on top of that, on then on like a more personal level, my parents always raised me with, you know, some of these core values were that you didn't, that you were 
responsible financially or um, you didn't you didn't live beyond your means um, that you treated people well with respect um, and basically you know the attitude was that I always kind of got growing up was like well as long as this person's not hurting other people then it really shouldn't matter how they choose to live their life and I thought I mean I, I thought those were great things and being somewhat young I, I just kind of assumed that you know here's here's what my parents are telling me and here's how they're raising me and this must correlate with their political beliefs right then I, I mean I think as I started to get a little bit older and pay a little bit more attention um, I realized that that wasn't always necessarily the case presidential election I could vote in was in 2008 I think I was 19 um, at the time and um, I voted for Obama because that just you know seemed like the the thing to do like I said it was uh, mm-hmm. you know I was basing a lot of my political beliefs off of my off of my parents and and the other adults around me at the time. And he had a lot of good rhetoric, seemed like a, a good thing to do. But somewhere between 2008 and 2012 is when I started to, I think, get a little bit, pay a little bit more attention and get a little bit more disillusioned with that way of thinking. Um, and I think there was a couple of things that happened. First, I, I, I started to kind of resent the idea that if, um, that if you were a, a caring, compassionate person, you had to vote a certain way. Or if you were intelligent, you had to vote a certain way. It just, it just never really seemed to make, I always, I kind of had a problem with that. Didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me that, that you have to be boxed in this way. Um, and then, you know, Obama had come to office. He had made all these grand promises, um, like that he was going to get us out of the, Iraq and Afghanistan. And obviously that never happened. Um, and, you know, by a lot of accounts, he escalated things over there. Um, so that kind of, I guess, started it a little bit, just kind of my disillusionment with, with all of it. Um, is it the war then, aspect really with Obama that really, that triggered you to start considering other, other ideas? You know, it it was that, and it was, you know, I'll say a lot of it was probably was related to, um, a lot of it was related to, to fiscal policy. Um, and I think, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, that's a, that's a big part of the problem of us being so overextended militarily is it's extremely expensive. Um, and that's fine if there's a, a good reason to be in a military engagement, but um, it just didn't seem like there was anymore. You know, we had we had gone over there, we had kind of completed our mission, and then we never left. Yeah, I want to I want to uh, circle back just a little bit. You brought up a very interesting point at the beginning here, where you said how you were raised, the way your parents raised you, had an essence of. Um, as long as they're not harming anyone else, people are free to live the way um, that they so choose. And uh, which sounds extremely libertarian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but, and then, but because your parents were Democrat and they raised you properly, I would say, um, but because they were Democrat, you, you 
uh, made a point to say you assumed that those who believe those ideals, that's the way they vote. And was yeah. it was it because of the more social aspects of, say, the Democrat side when your parents would say things like uh, as long as basically as long as people weren't hurting other people, they should be free to live the lives they like wanted, gay, like, and like, like gay marriage, for instance. Yeah, things like social aspects, things like that. Was, were they more Democrats among uh, along those lines? Yeah, I would I would say so. Um, and that's why I think especially with my initial you know, not looking very deep into it on the surface, it does appear that that's more of the democratic line of thinking, that they're more accepting of these individuals who are, you know, maybe in the minority for whatever, due to whatever group they're in, whether it's a, you know, r race thing or a, a um, sexual orientation or, or what have you. Um, but then at the same time, you know, you hear a lot of those same people um making fun of people that live differently than them and um their tolerance doesn't run very deep no no it doesn't and it always was kind of that that kind of started to bother me too because um you know i'd hear a lot of that making fun of people that that live differently than them and i never really understood why why that what why is that such a big deal i mean again they're not they're not affecting your life in any way they're not negatively impacting anyone around them why do you care i mean let them let them live do what they want to do um and you do what you want to do i mean <clears throat> but it, it didn't yeah like you say it, it didn't run very deep um so how is it that, um, you know, it obviously care about the social aspects a lot. And it's interesting because of some other conversations we've had that, that you ended up going <clears throat> more along the lines of the fiscal policy mattering a lot while also caring about all of the social things at the same time. There can be a lot of people who would think um, you need to prioritize the social responsibility first and then the fiscal. But is that where you come down on that? Or do you think the fiscal is more is more important for everyone? Well, so I'll say a couple of things about that. So first off, it, I think that the fiscal policy is, for me, that's my number one issue. I think that's the most important thing that we as a country need to take care of. We need to do something about the deficit. That's the thing that puts us, in my opinion, that's our biggest risk that we have as a country. Now, to kind of address another point that you brought up, though, a lot of people um, out of good, I think with good intentions, but somewhat erroneously believe that, well, if you don't want to spend money on people, then you're just a bad person. You're selfish and you just want these people to, you know, suffer or um, whatever. And that's and that's absolutely not true. Um, in a lot of ways you do, you do a great disservice to people. Um, you know, another, so I guess going back to my upbringing, um, I was also raised in a way where, um, to be, to be somewhat independent and to, um, to have to 
like figure things out on my own a little bit. Um, you know, I wasn't, wasn't just spoon fed either like stuff or, um, like material stuff or answers to questions that I had. Um, and I think that helped me grow as a person and, um, you know, that was, and that was definitely a parenting philosophy that, that my parents had, but, but then somehow for some reason that didn't translate to the way that the government should treat its citizens. Um, you know, if you, if someone's having a hard time, they should just step in and do something about it. You know, that was kind of the democratic, more democratic approach. Um, I'm I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh no, go go ahead. I I find that so interesting. Um, you know, I've done some charity work in, um, you know, what's considered third world countries like Peru. And what's so interesting is if you actually ask the people what they want, uh, they don't want money, really. They don't want health care or education or anything like that. The most, the number one thing people want is they want opportunity um, because they don't need your money. They know how to work. They, they want to have the opportunity to work and, and provide for their families. And I f- just find that so interesting how there's a shift um, in America where it's, and you talk about physical, physical policy being the number one issue which is something Nate and I agree with is economics is the number one killer of human beings really. And with terrible fiscal policy, which is, you know, a product of terrible economics, so to speak. um, Then all you're doing is making it worse for those that need opportunity the most. So I just, that was, that was a really, really good point you made. And I really, I really like that. I mean, there's a lot, you know, I think on the surface, it, it certainly appears that giving, you know, the government stepping in and providing to these people who are struggling, that appears to be the compassionate thing to do. Um, and I, I thought that for, you know, a while, but I think if you look at it a little bit more closely, it's a really in most cases, not helping these people. Um, so I recently finished reading, um, uh, one of Thomas Sowell's books, Economic Facts and Fallacies. Great one. And, really good one. Yeah. And in it, he talks about, um, he talks about some of the impacts of like welfare policies and specifically as it relates to black Americans. And he, he points out, and I don't recall the exact numbers, but he points out that the economic, basically the economic well-being of, of black Americans prior to the implementation of these welfare policies was rising at a a very fast rate. Um, Like I said, I don't recall the exact numbers, but at starting, you know, almost immediately after these policies were put in place, then the economic rise of black Americans slowed significantly. I think it was almost cut in half, basically. The The employment levels were higher in the early 1900s than, than they are even now, especially for, uh, especially for younger black Americans, young, young, you know, young black males, the employment levels were uh, so much higher than, than what they have been in, in recent memory. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It's, uh, so do you think when it comes to all of our social problems we're having, uh, the protests, the all of those movements, do you think economics has a lot to do with that? Do you think it's that there's uh, 
just bands of like roving bands of white supremacists around that are that are making everyone's lives terrible or do you think it it's actually a lot different than that i think i think economics plays a huge part in it i mean i think i think just about everything could be tied to economics um it would be hard to imagine if um it would be hard to imagine if every if every black american was was extremely wealthy that they would still be out there protesting i think i think economics plays a huge huge factor in it um and it certainly plays a huge factor in in the in the perceptions that people have of you i don't want to get into it too much but like talking about different priv privileges and and things like that people people who are wealthy don't have the same struggles as people who are not wealthy um and i think that transcends race yeah well, I, I completely agree sorry go ahead, another, Charles. yeah another interesting point um you know on that that entire ideal i would say is in essence uh and i'm stealing this from jordan peterson but when he talks about the matthew principle and he um and he talks about um one of jesus's quotes that man does not live on bread alone What's interesting is it seems to be the ideal of the left that we should supply everyone a baseline of bread, but by doing so, it's it's stealing from people the opportunity and the purpose uh, of their life, and you end up creating a a cycle that people can't seem to get out of, which is all which is all devolved from poor economics. Yeah. So, and actually, so it's interesting you you bring that up. I haven't read that book of his, but um, there's a book, another book that's one of my probably one of my all-time favorites it's called man's search for meaning by mm -hmm. um, uh, victor frankel and so um victor frankel is a psychiatrist who is a jewish psychiatrist in germany he went into the con he got taken into the concentration camps went was taken through a few different of them ultimately ended up at auschwitz um survived and wrote this book after the fact, but he came to the U S afterwards and he was working again. And he talks about how, um, he was working with people that were unemployed and basically, you know, these people would be suffering from heavy depression and, and by giving them, finding them something purposeful to do with their life. Um, they would, they would, you know, feel a sense of fulfillment and it might not help their economic situation because they may not have been a paid job, but, um, but all of a sudden it gave them a sense of purpose again. Um, and that was what they needed to basically live a, a good life. And so he makes, he makes reference to that same quote that, you know, man doesn't live on, on bread alone. Um, basically, you know, saying there's more, Except I think he says man doesn't live on welfare alone because, um, you know, he's making the point that by just giving someone money, you're not. You're not helping them find a purpose or a reason to live. You're not doing anything to help them in that regard. And they're. Um, those people still felt had severe cases of depression, even though now they could subsist. Y'all, let me jump in here real quick and tell you about the Liberty Trading Academy. That's at mastermytrades.com. 
We got a really cool, really cool special going on right now, something we just started this week. You can go to the website, mastermytrades.com. And yeah, there's a, there's a monthly subscription, right? Because there's a ton of education on there. Over 250 videos. We go live in the morning, every single morning. We discuss what we're gonna be trading and then we keep it live while I'm trading in the morning. Okay, so you can go to mastermytrades.com if you're interested. And the really, really cool thing going on right now is you can get a preview of the website and the content, full preview for two days. Now, I know that that's not forever, but a lot of times, you know, everyone does the seven day free trial, 30 day free trial. When you do that, you got to put in your credit card information, you got to do all this, and then you forget about it, and then it, and then it charges you money or something like that. And of course, that's part of the plan, you know, is to, is to go ahead and get that first month from everyone. Just saying, that's why people do that most of the time. And it's to help people try out the website. Well, I want you guys to be able to try out the website without even having to put in any credit card information whatsoever. All you got to do is go in there and sign up, make an account, and you'll be able to use it for two days. You're going to see all 250 videos that are on the website. There's so much education on this website, and it's focused at the beginning for people who have never even looked into the stock market whatsoever. So if you think you might be interested, you can go on there. There's no reason not to. You don't got to get your... You don't worry about where your wallet is. I know you're at home. You don't remember where you left your wallet. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about that. You just go on there, put in your email address, sign, sign up, make an account. And you're going to have access to the entire class for two full days. And then that's it. It doesn't start charging you immediately afterwards, anything like that. And then guess what? When you finish at the end of that, it's going to send you a coupon for 20% off for two months. If you do decide you want to use the class. Anyway, that is master my trades. Now I pulled up, um, while we were talking about this, I pulled up Kobe Bryant's letter to himself because it's one of my favorite things that I've ever read. And a very short little letter that Kobe Bryant wrote uh, to his younger self. He said, uh, when your Laker dream comes true, you need to figure out a way to invest in the future for your family and friends. He said, I said, invest. I did not say give. Purely giving material things to your siblings and friends may appear to be the right decision. You love them and they were always there for you growing up. So it's the right, it's only right that they should share in your success and all that comes with it. So you buy them a car, a big house, pay all their bills. You want them to live comfortable. But the day will come, you realize that as much as you believed you were doing the right thing, you were actually holding them back. You will come to understand that you were taking care of them because it made you feel good. It made you happy to see them smiling without a care in the world. And it was extremely selfish of you. I, I thought that that was, I mean, that he goes on for a few more paragraphs, but it's, I, I wish more people would read that letter <laughs> to, to his former self. Well, there's, yeah. there's a good point in there too, at the end, because, um, and I think, I think the first place I heard this made was in one of probably a, a speech by Milton Friedman, but when you're giving money and, and stuff and donating like that, you're doing it for yourself. It's, it's, it's selfishness. Um, and not like, that's not to say that you shouldn't do those things. You absolutely should. You should help other people out, but you know, let's, let's be honest here. It, it gives you the person who's giving a great sense of satisfaction. Otherwise you wouldn't do it. Yeah. If every time you gave money to someone, it felt like you'd just been, you know, kicked in the balls or, or like you, you were having your, your teeth knocked out or something like that. Um, you probably a lot less people would do it, but when you do it, you, uh, you feel good about mm -hmm. yourself for doing it.
and you can you can post that you did it or your name can be up somewhere on a wall or something like that. And make a video. yeah, you can make a video talking about it. You can tweet, you can you can at people all day on on Twitter and and um it it really is it it's out of a selfish I think it's out of a selfish desire, but I don't think that means it's a bad thing. That no, really, selfishness no, gets a bad not. rap in my opinion. Yeah, and I think, you know, actually I think another point that's lost on a lot of people um, who advocate for redistributing wealth or, or, you know, these, these social policies that are, that are funded through taxation. Um, I think what they, what a lot of those people probably don't realize is that um, America actually has one of the highest rates of charitable giving of any country in the world already, you know, at, at this current point. It, it's not like we don't, it's not like people don't help other people. They do. It, I think it probably happens a lot more than people think or realize that it does. Uh, do you think it would help more if we weren't giving uh, so much money to the government out of our paychecks too? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say that I think it would. Um, it, if I'm being honest, it's it's hard for me to to say that I know for a fact that it would. Um. I'd like to think that it would, because obviously then you've got a little bit more in your paycheck. Maybe you can help your neighbor out a little bit more. Well, I find it interesting, even as much as we are taxed, you know, we're still, in fact, America uh, gives more to charity than than the next 20 countries combined. Uh, I believe it's somewhere around $800 billion, uh, which is pretty insane considering yeah. how much uh, they're also, uh, well, how much everyone is also taxed. So, and of course there's incentives to give to charity as well, but, uh, even regardless, it's still, uh, fascinating to me. You mentioned, uh, Ron Paul as well here that, uh, he kind of helped, uh, shape your ideals as you started diving more into how the left, um, or at least Democrats weren't necessarily living up to the ideals you were raised on. Um, you know, he talked about the same thing in one of the debates that, um, but, you know, with healthcare before Medicare and Medicaid, he, he was like, I practiced it. and the the churches take care of him. He's like, we never turned anyone away uh, because they couldn't afford to pay. You know, we we took care of them like we would take care of anyone else. Yeah. What was it about Ron Paul that, you know, kind of helped with your views? If he was kind of the first person on the libertarian side you were listening to, what do you think it was about him that brought so many people over to that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so as I, if I go back to where I was kind of post somewhere between 2008 and 2012, um, you know, feeling not great with the state of who, uh, of the world or who I had voted for, um, not being totally happy with it. So then, you know, closer to coming up on the 2012 election, um, I was kind of turned on to Ron Paul and the, Actually, the funny thing about that is that I, I probably really, one of the, one of the main people who introduced me to him is actually someone who's not libertarian at all. Um, I would actually say he's, he's on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. But I think at the time, you know, he like, he wasn't to it as my understanding because he was just so fed up with everything that he just basically 
you know, his attitude was, was screw this. Let's just burn it all down. So anyways, <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, a lot of people like that, that Ron Paul was very anti bailout. So very, very mm -hmm. anti, you know, uh, during that time, during the housing crisis and all that, I, I sadly look back on that and feel like a lot of the crowds for Ron Paul were people who were leftists that hated big corporations and the government bailouts and were there because he was very much outspoken about the bailouts. I, I try to not to not have too much of a negative outlook on that, that maybe those crowds weren't as packed full of libertarians as, as we hoped, but I, yeah, I, I don't think they, I don't think they were, unfortunately. I think, I think what happened is you had a lot of people who were frustrated with things. Um, and they saw, they may have seen the same problems. And, and so they grasped, grasped onto the fact that he was the only candidate at the time who was even really speaking to these problems in, a, in an honest manner. Um, but they, I don't think they had deep ideological convictions. Um, and so then when you saw someone like Bernie Sanders come along, who was oftentimes pointing out the same problems, but offering a, a very different solution. Um, you know, I think people liked I, that solution, or if they didn't have those deep convictions, they they switched over to him because then there wasn't there really wasn't a um, equal counter on the right. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's kind of unfortunate, I think. Um, but that's that's really I think kind of where I started getting into libertarianism because then you know I heard the things that Ron Paul was saying and it really spoke exactly to those ideals that I talked about that I had been raised with treating basically live and let live kind of attitude um, in the in the fiscal economic side of things. Um, so I started, I got into I started getting into Ron Paul and then I started watching a lot of Milton Friedman videos, um, and then just kind of took off from there. Um, I think, I think another thing though, that people don't realize, and like one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why I say that economic policy, I think is, is my number one issue is that that deficit spending if it's good, if it hurts anybody it hurts poor people the most i mean because if you if you think about how how is the government spending money that it doesn't have well it's either borrowing it from from some other nation or it's making more money it's printing more money well if you print more money i mean that's what that's how you cause inflation and who do you think is hurt by inflation? It's, it's, or who do you think is hurt the most by inflation? It's certainly not the people with, it's certainly not billionaires. They benefit from the inflation, actually. <laughs> yeah, especially if they get the money first uh, before right. exchange hands, because then there's no, yeah. there's no inflation for them, really. Yeah. Uh, it's very minuscule compared to by the time it reaches the, the average consumer. So that's a very, very, another very interesting point. Um, kind of tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of a, away from politics, maybe a little bit, um, like who you are and, and 
what what are your hopes and dreams? I know you said you're you have a little one, so you're a dad, and um, you know, talk about how would you describe you know who you are as a person? My wife and I have a one year old son right now, and um, that is definitely the the kind of priority, you know, biggest probably biggest thing in my life right now. So I guess as far as hopes and dreams, right now a lot of it's focused on him um, and raising him to have hopefully a, a good and a happy childhood, but also that when he gets old enough, I want him to be, I want him to be able to pursue essentially whatever, you know, makes him happy and gives him a sense of fulfillment. And so I am, con- I mean, I'm concerned because the only way to do that, to, to have that available to him is to have, I feel like that sounds a little corny, but it, it's true. I mean, you have to have, and you have to have economic freedom in order to have individual freedom because if you don't have economic freedom, I mean, that's how the government is. That's a, a, a key way for the government to be able to control you and control your activities. So it puts a squash on, on the opportunity. It limits the opportunities uh, for sure. Um, and in fact, it, it actually uh, puts privilege on a pedestal, I would say, uh, because you're creating barriers to entry for those um, who don't have the affluence, let's say, uh, to start on, you know, rung number 20 because <laughs> they can't yeah. jump that high. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes it much, much more difficult to start something when you have to either jump through a lot of hoops or you have to um, certain infrastructure or things in place to to satisfy or, or pay to the government. It, it makes it much harder to start a business or to start any kind of organization. Um, And it's just really unfortunate. I mean, there's, there's a lot of cases where these big, where big corporations support regulations that would seemingly go against their best interests. And you might wonder why they would do that. You talk about like one example that I can think of is car companies supporting, um, strict stricter emission standards and and there's lots of other examples in different industries and you wonder why they might do that and for these big companies they have the resources to get around it or they may already have something in in the works that's gonna that's going to get them through it but it's going to make it much more difficult for a startup company or a small company to then have to to deal with these regulations so that's another example of how those government policies that are supposed to help everyone actually end up hurting people that they're they're saying they're going to help a little bit more backstory on you that I, I don't know if we asked yet but did you grow up in a wealthy household poor household how how did you grow up with that um middle class yeah i mean you know what yeah i would say pretty like solidly middle class family um and you know i'll be honest i i i lived probably a fairly easy life um, compared to a lot of people. Um, I was able to, you know, I was able to go to college after high school and that certainly helped me. I got an engineering degree and with that, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to to get a good job after that. Um, So I was very fortunate in that, in that regard. But, you know, if we go back to the topic, there's something we were talking about a little bit earlier um, and that somewhat relates to my upbringing too, is um, the idea 
again, that that in order to be compassionate, you have to be a Democrat. You have to support these democratic policies um, and these welfare type policies and the ways in which I just don't think I don't think that's true. And I think in many cases, it's, it's actually the opposite of that. As I was getting a little bit older, I saw a lot of other people around me who were in the same kind of situation that I was. They had come from middle class families. They really never struggled for anything in their life. Yet they were out here complaining about how unfair everything was. I mean, I just, first of all, didn't really get it because they hadn't really, um, you know, as far as I knew, most of these people, at least the ones that I knew personally, hadn't really struggled through anything really big in their in their life. Um, but the other thing is I didn't I didn't understand the goal of trying to take away every minor suffering that someone might encounter in their life. Um, you know, microaggressions became like a big topic. And well, the, the prefix micro means small. So it's obviously like a small thing. I mean, it's it's that's the word. That's the word. It's it's in the definition of the word. But I didn't get it because you you can try and take away all these, you can try and take away all these hardships for people, and maybe that's a noble cause. But you're never going to take away every hardship in life. I mean, life part of life is suffering. At, at the very least, at the end of it, you're going to die. We're all going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Everyone listening to this is going to die. And so, at the very least, you're going to suffer through through either your own death or, and or watching those around you that you love die. So, I mean, I had, you know, while I was in college, actually, um, I had my mom pass away who had been fighting cancer for the last previous six years, um, starting from when I was 14. And that was, and that was pretty hard on me again. You know, I'll acknowledge I, I've probably lived a pretty comfortable life, but that was, um, I mean, that was hard because that was the person who loved me the most and who I loved more than anyone in the world. And I watched her suffer for a long time and then she died. And I was in the middle of college far away when it happened. Um, you know, didn't really get to say goodbye. I went right back to school and had a hard time with it. I, that, that quarter that I was in, um, I didn't do very well. It, it, it didn't help that I was also in the midst of what were some of my hardest classes academically, but I got on academic probation and because of budget cuts, the policy at the school had changed where you basically had one quarter to get off academic probation or else you got kicked out. I came back from that quarter and for the rest of the time that I was in school, I never got below a 3.0. Um, in a major where the average graduating GPA was 2.5. It was, it was hard. It was a struggle, but I think it really, I think it really helped build who I am. And it, it helped me in the end, looking back on it, it helped me immensely to have a stronger character and, and, um, and grow and develop. And there was a lot of growth and development for me during that time. But I guess the point of all that is like, is that um, 
the goal of if you if you can avoid pain and suffering, then then absolutely you should. I mean, anything else is masochistic. But I I don't think you do anyone any good by trying to remove every tiny little moment of pain or suffering that they might encounter. And if anything, you do them a disservice because eventually they're going to stumble upon something that's very painful and they're not going to know how to deal with it. That's very much along the lines of the thing. If you haven't read 12 rules for life from Jordan Peterson, I mean, it is a perfect book to go read. It's a, all the things that he talks about are, are about making it through times like that. So, um, that is, that is really interesting. One, I mean, you, you know, led that off saying that it doesn't really matter what your financial situation is good or bad. I mean, you can't escape the fact that uh, we're all going to die and people around you are going to die. And there's, and, and so we've all got to be okay with that. And, and I think a, a good way of saying it would be that people should be free from, uh, from undue, from undue suffering, you could say, uh, and not that, anyone that's just do some suffrage or anything like that. But uh, really people taking positive action on other people to, to enact some kind some type of suffering is very different from someone being in a certain situation uh, in their life because of their life circumstances. And that I would, I see a lot of the things that the government does as creating undue suffering on people uh, that, that shouldn't be there. And not looking towards the future, like you helped one person with this other person's money, but did you create more people who are going to be in that situation now that are also going to need help? You know, that's, it's, um, have you had some of these conversations with people in your family or who are mostly, uh, on the democratic side or friends who are, who are leftists or anything like that? Like, are you the only libertarian in your close circle? Yeah, I would. I would say I am. I mean, so most of my circle of friends is probably on the left. Some of them are on the right, but they're, um, but they're definitely not libertarian. So yeah, I, I'm definitely a bit of an outlier there. I've, I've had conversations with them about this kind of thing to varying success. It, it just, I mean, it, it really just kind of depends on the individual. Probably the per- one of the people that I've been able to have the most, I don't know, rational or constructive conversations with is someone who's actually the left out of my group of friends. And I mean, I certainly haven't gotten him to change his mind at all, but I can actually have a conversation with him about something about issues. And we can leave that conversation, not mad at each other with, with maybe at least I hope an understanding for why the other person feels the way they do even if no one's mind has been changed. Yeah, do you think that anyone, has anyone in your life ever looked on, at you negatively because of the beliefs that you have or or vice versa? Have you, you know, I think there's a, a little bit of a difference between how uh, some people in the libertarian side, not all of them, but would look at people who are leftists versus people who are leftists look at people who are not leftists. Um, I think that there's a bit of a difference. Have you, had big blowups and lost anyone in your life or friends, you know, Facebook friends, even that, that, uh, that were on that side. I don't think so. Um, but you know, I haven't been on Facebook in years and I try not to get too political on Instagram. Um, so 
I think because I kind of kind of argue with people or or have a conversation with people on there is it's just a waste of energy in in my experience. Um, people don't read what you write; they they just rebut with whatever point they want to make, and it's just an exercise in futility. What do you think has led to um, the the political divide that we see and and the the discourse that's happening now, whereas if uh, on both sides, the right and the left, you know, if you don't agree with me or my person, then uh, you're evil. Essentially. What, what do you think has led to that? And, and um, what, what, what can we do to try to bring people back to understanding that we're all just human beings. And, and what I love that you mentioned the most is like your purpose is like your number one priority is being a dad. You know, you're not just Andrew, like you're Andrew and you're a dad and, and you care about, you know, raising your, your son properly and, and providing opportunity for him and things like that. So what, how do we get people to see you as Andrew, the dad and not Andrew hates poor people? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's a good question. So, um, I don't know. I, I personally buy into the theory that um the divide is all is all orchestrated um through politics on purpose um because i mean only because i don't know it just kind of makes sense to me i think if you if you're looking at either of those two of the two big political parties how do you what's going to be the most effective way to ensure that people vote for your side, get them as passionate about it as you can. Um, and not just passionate about what you're spouting, but, um, passionate about the other side being wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that makes a lot of sense because, you know, obviously I believe the media and, and those people like they're not, they're not dumb. You know, they, they understand their, their data and what gets the most clicks and what gets the most views. They look at the ratings. You have very smart people studying this data and they understand, you know, especially the Trump side or the Biden side, what they need to say or um, the, the points they need to hammer home. You'll notice, especially like in the debates recently, um, you know, Trump repeatedly has talked about Joe Biden's crime bill. And not in the sense of, uh, I mean, he did mention it was poor for, for black Americans, but he didn't really go into any detail about anything specific about that. He kept hammering home the point, and he's done this for the last couple of weeks, about how Joe Biden called black people super predators. He just keeps using that word over and over and over again. Super predator, super predator, super predator. And that I guarantee you somebody has some type of polling or data or something like that that says, well, this is what is going to to garner the most attention and uh, create, as you said, the most uh, emphatic uh, voters that get the people actually out to vote. You know, and I find that interesting because those of my, in my family who are Trump supporters, uh, one of the number one reasons they say they like him is because he hits back, you know, like he's not afraid to punch back and they were tired of being, you know, kicked down by the Democrats all the time. And uh, they they finally have somebody in their corner who's fighting for them. They feel like um, I just find that it's like what 
you want people to hit other people <laughs> essentially <laughs> like what happens to two rights don't or two wrongs don't make a right I yeah think to, to defend your family i think they want someone who will hit back when they're being hit yeah yeah exactly i mean that that's a good point it's but it's it's also really interesting um because I think if there wasn't such a hate, if if there wasn't such a strong hate for Trump by the by the left side, you might have a hard time convincing a lot of those people to vote for uh, for Biden. Um, I think a lot of people, at least who I know, Biden wasn't their first choice out of the however many candidates they put up this seventeen, I think, something. (laughs) Yeah. Um. You know, Biden wasn't their first choice, but they're voting for him because um, because they they absolutely abhor Trump and they they can't possibly imagine, you know, um, voting for him or having him in office for another four years. And so you have the side of the political spectrum who's been out here crying for criminal justice reform, supporting the person who. Uh, not only you know was re- largely responsible for that ninety four crime bill, but then has a VP candidate who also has a terrible track record of uh, of putting innocent people away while she was the DA. So, um, but somehow that doesn't matter. But it can only not matter if you dislike the other side so much that nothing that your side does matters. Nothing bad that your side does matters. And what's interesting, you put it all together, um, you don't, you start not to really see much difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. <laughs> and, and I, and, and what, what's interesting, I'm saying political party wise and, and with the politicians, but what's interesting is I think a lot of Americans actually deviate from the status, current status quo. I, I don't think a lot of Americans are, happy with um let's say the choices and the way the government's operating but it's almost like they don't see another option it's like well if i it's almost as if well we know a lot of things are fear driven but it's almost as if if i don't hold my nose this time which is what they've been saying for 50 years if i don't hold my nose this time and that other guy gets in it's going to be a lot worse. And at least I can manage this because I'm comfortable with it now. Yeah, I think it's uh, both sides are very defensive. They're they're really uh, just trying to stop the rise of the other side, really. Um, mm-hmm. Even though they might have a lot of libertarian beliefs, they're just scared of what would happen if they were libertarian and one of the other sides was still in control. Well, and you saw, I mean, even in the last, you saw in the last election, um that the that the libertarian party had a a reasonably good turnout for at least you know for for them and that probably scared some people a little bit too but now i mean you've got the old you've got the uh third party wasted vote line coming up a lot in this election and it comes it's coming from both sides so <laughs> it was kind of funny there i mean there was a meme that said something on the lines of if you vote for a third party, 
you're voting for Biden. If you vote for a third party, you're also voting for Trump. And if you vote for a third party, you're voting for that candidate. Mm -hmm. So your vote counts three times. It's the most effective. You should definitely vote for a third party. The most bang for your buck. Yeah. (laughs) That's a a great meme. Um, So to uh, kind of end things here a little bit, my last thing would be uh, kind of your really your final pitch on how libertarianism would actually help the people that the people on the left want to help how that just like charlie said earlier you know why you're not you're not a terrible person for for uh you know not wanting the massive welfare state and everything that we have and and that you actually do care about people why why is it that libertarian is the best way to help the most amount of people i think you need to give I think you need to give people a chance to um, to live with a purpose and to to help themselves out. And I think I think you'd be surprised at what people can accomplish in that position. I mean, that's how this country operated for the vast majority of its existence. And you had tons of immigrants come to the country with nothing and raise themselves up out of poverty. You had a system of of capitalism that is responsible for raising more people like as a, as a group of people raising that the standard of living and raising them out of poverty than any other economic system that's ever existed in all of history. And I mean, that's that pretty hard to argue with. And what's, what's changed between then and now is that, that, that system that we have has just gotten farther and farther away from a from a free market. And I think that's another really important distinction to make is that people blame capitalism now. People blame the free market now. Well, we don't have a free market. We have, you know, we're extremely far from that. Um, I saw, you know, it's it, it's what would be called crony capitalism or I actually saw it referred to as crony socialism, which I think is a better um term for it because it's it's now you've got government and big and businesses in bed with each other even more so maybe fascism <laughs> yeah that's how we yeah. look at it privately owned but government controlled mm-hmm. and and i guess you know another kind of closing point to make on that is is especially with everything that's going on right now socially and um BL, like the BLM movement and, and all of this stuff. Um, you know, I have to wonder why anyone concerned about the rights of black Americans would trust the government to fix that because the government has been the biggest perpetrator of, of injustices against black Americans. Um, you know, they're the ones who made it legal to segregate black Americans. They're the ones who made it legal um, to to uh, make them ride in the back of the bus. I mean, like that the bus that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on, it was a government owned bus. It wasn't it wasn't a private transportation. You know, they're the ones who 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 are locking up who are locking these people up because of ridiculous laws. I, I just don't get why do you think that now they're going to change? Why do you think they're going to be any different now than they've been throughout all of history? It's also interesting to see people going towards someone who's been there for almost all of history. 
you know yeah because it's pretty pretty crazy he's uh he's uh you know biden's been in there for 50 years what do, what do the georgians say he's been there for like 20 percent of the time that america's been a country he's been yeah he's I, been in office why why do you think he's going to change now he's yeah. not i mean that's the bottom line if somebody's been doing something the same way for 50 years they're not going to just change overnight it's i mean that's that's just that's not going to happen Sorry. Especially being so old. I mean, everyone knows how hard it is to get your grandpa to change his ways. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> if you enjoyed our interview with Andrew, then you might enjoy some of the other interviews we've done for the Rehumanizing Project. Just run through the podcast and find those episodes that say Rehumanizing Project episode whatever number it is, and go back and listen to those episodes. If you liked it, then tell a friend, tell a communist uncle, tell your socialist cousin who's not as crazy as their dad yet, that they need to listen to this podcast every single day of the week when we want to, because do all that. We'll be right back here on Monday. Have a good day and a good morning, Liberty.